you guys remember the um, emergency alert test that went out? Okay. He did. Nice. You zinged him. I'll tell him that you got him. You got him good, Kevin. <laughs> oh, not the emergency that came on in the church, the one that went on your phones. With that in your mind, I'm going to tell you a story. This is crooked, and last time I tried to fix it, I broke it. Just like, there. Okay, it's not broken. Imagine, close your eyes, if, you, if, you, if it helps you think about yourself in a story, close your eyes, that you wake up tomorrow morning. So far, so good. <laughs> you're having some coffee, maybe, if that's your thing. Maybe you have kids. Maybe you're making the kids breakfast. Maybe you're reading the news if you're an adult or something. And then the alert goes off. It's just blasting loud on your phone, whatever that sound was. And it's not stopping. And so you check your phone, and it says, emergency alert. This is not a test. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> your government has fallen. Your country has been taken. Comply with our rules, regulations, and customs, and no loss of life or property will result. Signed, the Deputy Minister of Russia's North American Annex. I don't know what this person's name would be, but Donald Biden. <laughs> then the power goes out. Your phone shuts off. For a minute, you're just like, what is happening? A little like some panic sets in, disbelief. But then your phone turns back on. And instead of the Apple logo, it's like, I don't know, the Soviet hammer and sickle or something. You like open it for some reason. You go to the, like the map app on your phone, and it shows your location as the 214th district of the North American annex of Russia. The map lines over North America are, are redrawn, and the 50 states of the America that you once knew is gone. All your apps on your phone, social media news, replaced with sanctioned news and media apps from our new lords. But as you leave your house, there's no chaos out in the streets, no rioting, no looting. People are just kind of going along with it. Um, whatever flags, you know, American flags were hanging on people's houses, schools, government buildings, businesses, they're now Russian flags. And you, don't, you, don't, you yourself don't wonder why uh, the change has gone uncontested, why there's no chaos or anarchy happening. You just go along with it. Little did you know, that morning, they released a compound in the water that targets this part of your brain that makes you compliant. <laughs> it deals with your memories, your loyalties, and allegiances. Don't question the logic or the science in this story. And yes, I have submitted it to um, various TV and news or media outlets to write a story about it. Um, the days turn to weeks, the weeks to months, months to years. The memory of America fades. You and your family, our whole community, our whole nation, you just live as if you'd always belonged to this North American annex of Russia. Decades go by. Your, some of your kids grow, marry. Your life is now, for all intents and purposes, it's just thoroughly Russian. There's no memory or hint of the life you used to have until one day you hear about this guy who says, He's going to bring back something called the United States of America. And you're like, what is that? He starts telling stories about a revolutionary war, 
a declaration of independence from some other country, the laws and principles of what he called a democratic republic. 50 states, the balance of power between the states and then this thing called the federal government, the laws that they used to follow in this thing called the Constitution and its amendments, and it starts to come back to you. Oh yeah, that's, that's ringing a bell. You remember that you lived in a land that once belonged to another nation, your nation. And this guy, the one who says he's gonna restore the land to its former glory, he's bringing America back. He says it's happening. In fact, he has the antidote to the compound that they released in your water all those years ago <laughs> that will help you remember. But his first order of business is simply to, to tell some people what used to be and what was coming. This is who you were and here's what's coming. America is coming back. We're restoring our country. But his first job, not to oust the Russians, is to unlock the soul and the minds of these people to remember who they really are, where they're from. So people come from all over the world to get this antidote so that they can remember. They go and see his relics from the past, American flags and memorabilia and history. But when they leave, they go back out to a thoroughly Russian world. It looks, at least it appears that way. The restoration of America has not taken place yet, but they're surrounded by many, they are, as they go out, they're surrounded by many people who do not remember the old America. And so this guy, this American hero, his goal, phase one, unlock their mind so they can remember who they are. But it'll be a while before he returns with some type of army to take back America from the Russians. If you forgot that I wasn't making up a silly story with a thousand plot holes, <laughs> the goal was to place yourself in this story. So do that again. Just imagine, imagine that's you. Imagine what it would be like after years of oppression from a foreign nation, so much so uh, you forgot who you used to be, um, but then as you remember, and you remember with some others who are also remembering, imagine what it would be like to be physically in the same room as the Americans who were remembering what was and what was promised that would be coming physically in the same place as other Americans who had had their eyes opened like yours, who were remembering who they were, remembered where your citizenship actually belonged, who was the rightful owner of the land that you lived in. In a certain sense, you could say that when you gathered with those people, whatever room that you were in, in a, a school or a gym or someone's home, you could say that for that moment in space and time, you are the United States of America because you understand what is going on, what's, what's coming, what used to be your land, what was gonna be restored to you, that physical space would be the United States. And the very fact that you would gather together as the people that knew what was, once was and knew what was coming, it would be a very political statement to gather together. When you gather, you're not just being nostalgic. Oh, the good old days. No, you are acknowledging that another nation existed and you believe it's coming again. Uh, you might not even need an agenda or a plan of action uh, or goals. You just are making a statement by being physically together in the same room, sharing the same understanding of reality as you knew it. Now, it may be a painfully obvious metaphor, um, 
I'm not going to actually submit that to um, anyone like to make a Tom Clancy movie, don't worry. Um, we, story's over. <laughs> You're welcome. We need to readopt um, some metaphors that uh, God has given us in the scriptures or that are closer to the ones that God has given us that can help us reimagine ourselves as the church. What I mean is that we may have all um, inadvertently adopted an unspoken cultural metaphor or something that's not from scripture. Ways that we envision or imagine ourselves as the church, like what, what it is that we're doing. There's a book called Desiring the Kingdom by an author named James K.A. Smith. And he says, the way we inhabit the world is not primarily as thinkers or even believers, but as more effective embodied creatures who make our way in the world more by feeling our way around it. This, and then in many other words in this book, which is outstanding, he describes that we are not as intelligent as we claim to be. <laughs> that we actually um, go around feeling our way in the world with our gut or our heart, the Bible calls it, rather than rationally understanding everything around us. Included in this idea is something that he calls a social imaginary, which is kind of like a worldview. Um, it's how we imagine ourselves as fitting into the culture and society that we live in. And the church, from within its host culture, which is our country, we also develop a social imaginary of what we think it means to be the church in the world. And if we're not careful, we will, and I think have adopted um, imagery and metaphors and a social imaginary based on similar organizations or institutions in our culture. Examples. I think there's three main types that I think have worked our way into how we imagine what it means to be the church. Um, meaning I think that we think that church is some hybrid of these three things, maybe among others. This would be like an activist nonprofit organization. There's one thing that exists in culture. Uh, also, like a cause or affinity-based community where you join with people because you are like them or you like the same things or you have a, a similar goal. And then the third one, I don't know the category for it, so I'm gonna say it's a hybrid between a gym and a health food store. <laughs> so the activist nonprofit, it, it exists to alleviate suffering and or fix some type of injustice in the world. Those exist in our world and the church adds that to the recipe of another thing, which is the cause and affinity-based community where you get together with people that are like you and or people who want to do something similar as you in their life. And finally, the gym and the health food store, a place that you know you should go, sometimes that you don't, you don't want to. Um, and when you go, it's because you're trying to uh, better yourself, whether that's exercising or feeding yourself healthy food and all that stuff. So my view, again, is that the church accidentally imagines itself that we imagine ourselves as some hybrid of those organizations that exist in our culture. A philanthropic nonprofit with an emphasis on like-minded community and we come together so that we can become better versions of ourselves. Now maybe that's not your read of kind of uh, what the church is in culture today, um, but in some of my conversations with some people in our church and some outside, I think that it's one of those three things, and usually a combination of all of them, that kind of bleeds out. It's what we imagine, what we feel in our gut that we should be as the church. 
If I asked you to describe what the church is, you probably wouldn't describe it with one of those three things. Like if I said, write down a definition, you're not gonna write that down. You're probably gonna be a good Christian and say, oh, I'm making disciples and a great commission and loving God and all those things which are good and true and right. But if I asked you to tell me what about the church in general or about ours is disappointing to you, I bet something near the top of the list would be a failure to be one of those three things that we talked about, which means that that's what in your gut you imagine we should be as a church. So what you think the church is on paper might be different than what your gut imagines the church should be, and your gut is far more powerful than your mind in shaping your desires and affecting your emotions, influencing the things that cause you happiness and fulfillment, and also help influencing what disappoints you. So at the expense of losing impact and force on my main idea, what I've just described, this like philanthropic, community-focused, self-betterment uh, nonprofit, it is sort of what the church is or can be. It's not, not that at all. It's just so much more than that. And so I submit that we need to rewire our brains. I don't know how yet, uh, but we have to do we have to begin to change our social imaginary of what we think it means to be the church together. And my first shot in the dark at doing that is that silly story from the beginning. <laughs> because I think that that group in this fake society uh, where Russia has taken over, but they're ready for Russia to be ousted again and joined um, America Restored, I think that that is so much closer to what the scriptures describe the church as, as being in the world, which is a very highly political gathering of people who simply by being together physically in the same room are proclaiming that there is another very real nation, another very real ruler or king that is coming to establish his kingdom. Not somewhere out there in the multiverse, but right here in this physical space. I mean, imagine how wild it would be if right now, maybe there is, oof, uh, if right down the road from us there was a group that was meeting for the purpose of hoping, desiring, and expecting that Russia would invade and take over this country. I mean, we'd probably call it, I don't know, is that treason or sedition or something very close to it? <laughs> there would be no way that we would simply call that like a religious belief, like, ah, eh, just kind of let them do what they want. That is very political by its nature. And the church is the physical expression of the kingdom of God on this earth. So in that story, when those awakened citizens uh, gather together, it, it's creating holy ground under their feet. And that's what we are doing right now. Our being physically together is far more profound than I really think any of us think it is when we walk in the doors uh, together. And that's really my one goal. Um, I will hopefully try to explain why I think that's true, but if uh, that's all that you understand is walking in the door, sitting together, and yes, like opening the scriptures and praising the Lord together is, is part of it, but simply being together, acknowledging there's another king who is coming back to establish a rule and reign here. Um, is one of the most profound things that we can do and brings so much meaning to our gatherings. Um, and so I hope that maybe you remember that if you don't remember anything else. Last week, I asked you a series of questions um, 
after reading the story uh, in John of uh, many disciples that deserted Jesus after he talked about what was going to become communion where he told people, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. People were freaked out and they're like, we don't know what this guy is talking about, what he means. And so a lot of disciples leave. Um, and so Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them, do you also want to leave? And they say, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so we together uh, placed ourselves in that scene and imagined Jesus asking us that in light of all that's going on in the world. All the people, at least in my life, that seem like they are either abandoning Jesus or neglecting being with his other followers and the family of God. We asked the question of ourselves, are we also going to leave? When the way of Jesus gets too hard, when it comes up against our desire for autonomy, our own dreams and goals and fulfillment, when something about the scriptures is just kind of embarrassing or shameful to believe um, in front of a watching world, are we also going to leave like those disciples? Or is Jesus still your Lord and your rabbi? And do you still believe and know that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior and the rightful King of the universe? So as we reflected on that passage, kind of imagined ourselves with Jesus, him asking us that question, um, I said something like, if you answer no to those questions, like, no, I'm not convinced that Jesus is still the Lord. I'm not convinced that he alone has the words of eternal life. I said, that's okay. You don't have to think that. But if the answer was no, I said that, well, then our church does not have to exist. But if the answer is yes, if we're sitting here together and we're like, yes, Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah, I believe in him, I said, then we, we must exist. We have to. And here's what I mean by that. That's what I'm picking up on today. Um, N.T. Wright wrote one of my all-time favorite books called How God Became King. It is about Jesus and the Gospels. It's fantastic. In the beginning of the book, he brings out this really helpful metaphor to describe the gospel as being this sort of like multi-speaker stereo system with four different speakers, each producing their own kind of like part of the gospel story. And in this analogy, his kind of proposition in the book is that um, it's one song, it's the gospel playing out of all four speakers, but we've got each speaker is kind of out of balance and out of phase with one another. And so one speaker maybe is turned down way too low and you can't hear it because another one is just turned up all the way. It's so loud that it's distorting and crackling the speaker. Um, the point is that the gospel is a rich symphony with multiple aspects, um, and we need to understand all the different parts of it, not neglect um, some and focus on others to the point of misunderstanding. And so there are two speakers of this gospel symphony that I wanna talk about. I promise it's related. Um, these aren't in his book, but I think he would be all right with me adopting the metaphor. In our case, there's a left speaker and a right speaker. Most music, that, all the music that you listen to is what's called stereo. There's left and a right channel. Um, left, right. They need to be in balance or else we won't hear as it is meant to be heard. The left speaker is about what I'll call individual salvation. This is most likely the gospel that you have heard, that you are a sinner, that you need to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, confess that he's the Lord, um, that he is the, um, the one who can forgive you of your sins because he died on the cross. And so we say, I'm messed up, I'm broken, and I trust you, please forgive me, Jesus. Individual salvation. And then from that point on, we're not guilty anymore of our sin because Jesus has forgiven us. It's good. 
It's true. The right speaker is something called salvation as a formation of a people. And I think that that speaker is basically unplugged. That salvation, as much as it saves an individual from their own kind of guilt with sin, it also brings together, forms together a people. I think that speaker on the right is just unplugged, almost to the point where I don't know that we know the song of the gospel anymore. If you've only ever heard half of a song's audio, do you, have you like really heard the song? So what I'd like to do is plug back in the speaker um, and turn it up to the appropriate volume. And so I'm gonna very quickly try to kind of trace a story um, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, which sounds like I'm gonna do a lot, but it's gonna be quick, don't worry. First, we're gonna go to Genesis 11. It'll be on the screen if you don't wanna flip all around. The whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Let us go down, confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel because the Lord confused their language of the whole, the language of the whole world and from there he scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So take note, these people, want to make a name for themselves. It's a key phrase. They want to make a name for themselves, build this impressive tower that reaches to the heavens. And so God does not like this for some reason, scatters it. The next chapter, chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, who would become Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you, so just think about it, we've got, all these, like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people at Babel scattered. And then very intentionally, just a chapter later, we just go and zoom in, like as close as you can onto one guy from one family from one nation. Said to Abraham, Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Babel, they want to make a name for themselves. God is going to make Abram's name great. And he, Abram, will be a blessing. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So we look at Babel, and they're all scattered, and we're like, yeah, those prideful people, like, yeah, spread them out, Lord. I don't know why that's such like a... <laughs> bad thing that the Lord would do. They're spread out. And then God zooms in, and like, it's, it's 30 seconds of reading after the story of Babel. He's already picked someone out to undo what just happened at Babel, to like make it right. He wants Abram to be a blessing to the nations. And so that's what the story of the Bible is about, is how does God bring the nations back to himself? And it is through Abraham and his family. Later, Abraham's family is in trouble. They are in Egypt, 
They are enslaved to a terrible, terrible tyrant named Pharaoh. They cry out for deliverance, and God answers their cries, and he delivers them in a mighty way. Most of you have seen Prince of Egypt, so we know exactly how it went down. And he delivers them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and delivers them through the Red Sea. It's a beautiful scene. They sing this epic song. I was gonna read the scripture, but Exodus 15 is them like, they sing a worship song when they make it through to the other side, and it's amazing. We're gonna look at Exodus 19. So they're barely past, like they've stepped out of the water. They've dried off a little bit. And God is forming a people. Exodus 19, verse three. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they're delivered through this sea. They sing a song about God's deliverance, about how he rescued them, how the nations would fear them in that song in Exodus 15, um, how the nations would fear them because of how powerful Yahweh is. But then, as God begins his official covenant relationship with these people, he tells them that they're going to be a kingdom of priests. It's really easy to just like read past it and dismiss it because we're reading the Bible and kingdom of priests sounds Bible-y and Christian-y. You're like, oh yeah, cool, kingdom of priests. Cannot skip past that. They are a distinct, it says holy nation, again, more kind of like Bible word. We're like, yeah, whatever, they're supposed to be good people. Priests mediate between a God and people. Um, and so, Yahweh is saying that the whole people of Israel, all of them, not just individually, but as a people group, are to mediate between uh, God and the rest of the nations. So it is in this idea that we kind of come full circle back to the promise of Abraham. God said he'll make Abraham into a great family. He did. There's tons and tons of people here in Exodus. He says he will bless them. He will curse those who curse them. We showed that when he delivered them from uh, Pharaoh's army. And that he will bless the nations through Abraham's family. And in this way, it's because they are representing God to the world. So in this first official phase of uh, Israel's relationship with God, um, all of their laws in some way are about distinguishing them, distinguishing Israel as a separate, clean, for lack of a better phrase, a moral group. In Bible speak, that's a holy nation. They live how God asked them to live, and in so doing, they show the nations what Yahweh is like, how good he is, how good his people can be, and this theoretically should draw the nations in. Pause, you guys doing okay? If you're lost, so am I, it's fine. Um, if all you knew about the concept of salvation was from the Old Testament, you would think about redemption and deliverance as a people slash community forming event. We don't have a framework yet for like, I need to be made right with God. Salvation up until this point is God decides to like 
grab a people and rescue them and set them apart as his people. Unfortunately, Israel rather miserably failed at their job of representing um, God to the world. Rather than being a distinct holy people, a kingdom of priests, they eventually wanted to be just like all the other nations that were around them, and they wanted a regular human king for them, for themselves. It does not go well. God concedes to their desire, gives them a king, uh, and actually meets them in that failure with another promise, a promise that a future king would come from the line of David to rule over God's kingdom forever. But this king does not come in all of the Old Testament. If you read through Kings and Chronicles, it's like this repeated storyline of like, is David's son or one of his descendants gonna be the one to do this right, to be good and to lead Israel to obey God? And each one you're like, nope, nope, nope. Um, They did not, these kings did not represent Yahweh well. They did not lead Israel to be faithful. And so, as God promised in the law he gave to Israel at the very beginning, they are driven out of the land that God led them to, sent into exile, overtaken by the evil nations around them. And it is in that just rock bottom for Israel that God meets them yet again. And he promises through multiple prophets that one day exile would end, that God would make a new covenant with his people and they would give them new hearts that would be actually able to do what God wanted them to do and to be who he wanted them to be. And that this new covenant would reestablish them as God's people, his community and his kingdom. So let me just read two short sections. Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Similarly, Ezekiel 37, verse 21 This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their fences for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. My servant, David, he's not talking literally about David, he's talking about the promise that a descendant from David's line would rule forever. My servant, David, will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant, Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. Again, I will be their God and they will be my people. So God plans to make all of this right, what what Israel um, kind of blundered and broke. 
to restore them as his people who represent him to the nations. But the Old Testament ends, and not only has this new covenant not come, but God has been seemingly silent for a while until Jesus. Jesus comes announcing something that seems kind of new. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Now we have to hear that phrase coming out of the right speaker. So we've, we've plugged the speaker back in. The speaker that plays the sounds about salvation being something that forms a people, that forms a community. It's easy to hear Jesus say the kingdom of God is here and for some reason we're kind of trained to go right to, yeah, he's here, he's the king, he's gonna die to save me from my sins. True. But his actual word, think about his words. He's launching a rule and reign in a place over a people. That's what a kingdom is, a rule or a reign in a place over a people. Now, we've talked at length um, in our teaching throughout the Gospel of Matthew um, about uh, what people thought Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God is here. They had expectations about a here and now kingdom that probably looked like the kingdoms around them. They thought that they would be delivered from the Roman Empire. But Jesus was and still is playing a long game. He did not want to just deliver Israel then and there in the first century from the ones who seemed like they were in charge. For the, in their case, it was Rome. He was and is planning and executing a once and for all deliverance from a different kind of power and authority and establishing a different kind of kingdom, much fuller or better than any kingdom on this earth could be right now. Jesus tells Pilate um, in his trial before he's crucified that his kingdom is not of this world. He says, if it was, I and my followers would be fighting to stop this from happening. But the kingdom Jesus is, was establishing and is, is categorically different from any that exists on this earth. We're almost there. Listen to how Paul describes what Jesus was doing when he died and rose again. Colossians 1.13. For he, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is properly balanced, both speakers coming at you with the gospel. Redemption and forgiveness of sins, yes. And he has transferred us from one kingdom to another, from one people to another, to the kingdom of God where Jesus reigns. Peter says basically the same thing. In 1 Peter chapter two, he says, but you are... Think back to Exodus 19, we read that, put that in your mind. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. The language is like, borrowed right out of Exodus 19, that we, like Israel, are a special possession, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, chosen, called out of darkness and into light. Once we were not a people, and now we are. Once we had not received mercy, but the way that that verse is lined up makes it sound like when you receive mercy, then you become 
part of the people of God. And if you continue reading uh, that passage in 1 Peter, like what happens in Exodus 19, where God says, you're my people, and then he lines them out with kind of how he wants them to live over lots of books of the Old Testament. Um, if you keep reading Peter, the same thing happens. He goes on to tell them to live such good lives among the, the nations around them that they would see their good deeds and give glory to God. They're basically, we're supposed to do what Israel was supposed to do. My point. Uh, when an individual is saved by Jesus and individually saved, we must be. Just as much as we're forgiven and made, individually made right between us and God, and as significant as that is, when a person is saved by Jesus, you are, we are joined to God's people. To be saved is to be forgiven, but you cannot be forgiven without also being transferred from one kingdom to the other, from the domain of darkness to the people of God. God's redemption is as much about the deliverance and formation of a people as it is about an individual not being punished for sin and going to heaven. The people group that God is forming now here amongst us is called the kingdom of God. He also calls us the church, which is just another word that means the physically gathered assembly of people that God has called out of darkness and into his kingdom. So I will try to bring this back to where we started. God's kingdom is inaugurated, but not consummated. Sometimes we use the phrase, it's, it's already and it's not yet. It's here in part, and it will be here in full later. We have the promise of a kingdom, we have the victory of the king, and we have uh, the growing people of the kingdom, but the enemy is not dead yet. He's only mostly dead. The book of Revelation, among many things, um, describes the fully arriving kingdom, um, particularly in 11, Revelation 11. After the seventh and final trumpet blows, there's this anticipation of Jesus defeating the great dragon, Satan. And it says this line that maybe you've sung before in the Hallelujah Chorus, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. Can you let that sink in for a moment? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. So when you and I, when we are together in this room, we are the kingdom of God. We are the people of the kingdom. Jesus is our king. He has authority and dominion in this place, in this space, and in our lives. And as we um, gather, we anticipate the future of Jesus' kingdom arriving fully. If America was overtaken by Russia and we all forgot that we were Americans until someone unlocked our souls to remember and told us to hold weekly USA meetings in anticipation of the coming restoration of our country, that meeting space would be sacred ground. In, in that moment of meeting and in what it, would, what it represents. And so when we sit here together, week in and week out, it is so easy to, for us to lose that completely, myself included. But it is sacred ground because we are God's, the people of God's kingdom. And it's even more so because we are the people who anticipate and believe in the final overthrow of our enemy and his kingdom. His kingdom. 
which is not any nation, it's not any human, it's Satan and the dominion of darkness. Again, it's very, very, all too easy based on our cultural, social imaginaries to think about church as a community that is helping us in our individual pursuit with Jesus. You are a Christian and the church and its people should help you in your journey with Jesus. But that's not all that we are doing. So God has saved us into a new kingdom. We are a new people and our identity, I think, needs to be somehow actually rooted in this kind of collective sense. Not simply, I decided to follow Jesus, I happened to be involved with some other Christians, but rather Jesus saved me and brought me into this family, which in my life right now looks like this church family for this day and this season of my life. And someday it might look like a different church family, and that's okay. So when you say that you believe Jesus is the Messiah and the hope for this world and there's nowhere else that you'd rather go, and I say, great, that means, that means our church needs to exist. What I mean is that for right now, this Sunday, hopefully next Sunday, for this season of your life, this community is the, like, uh, it's the expression of the people that God has saved us into right now. This people here at Valley Church, we are the people that need you and uh, we are the people that you need. One of my uh, seminary teachers said this thing that I thought was silly and now I think it's really great. He said, Christians are like bees. <laughs> if you destroy their hive, they will, by nature, find another congregation of bees <laughs> to join. They'll join a hive or they'll make a new one. It is just in their nature. Um, you may get hurt by other Christians, probably who have been. You may get hurt by them in a church and you may leave that church or the church may fall apart. Valley Church might fall apart someday. But in that scattering of God's people, I am 100% confident that all of us will eventually find our way back to a people of God because that's what Christians do. Think of some people um, that I know well people that are close to me who were probably as invested as you can be in a church and were probably as hurt as you can be by the church, that church. I remember hearing them say things like, I will never, ever be able to be involved in a church like that ever again. We just, we just will never be able to. I remember thinking, I get it, and that's sad. I wish I could help. Um, and sure enough, after some time, after some healing, they started just drifting back like a bee that needs to find a hive. They started drifting back to being involved, being connected to a people of God. I get asked a lot, again, about how Valley's doing, what our, what our vision, what our mission is, and sometimes this really cynical part of me thinks that <laughs> vision and mission statements become part of like the way a church brands itself. It's like part of our marketing, like how we distinguish ourselves amongst other churches. Um, Sometimes I just wish that I could say, we exist because the people that go here decided to follow Jesus at some point, and when God saves people, he forms them into a community, and that's what we are. It's not a lot more special than that. 
And actually, I think that's plenty special. And I sometimes wonder if there are, if there are aspects of following Jesus, growth to be experienced, blessing to be received, that only happen when we acknowledge the community formation of our salvation and lean into that and commit ourselves to one another. Um, Christian Sam, you guys can come up. We're gonna end with some worship together. I had one goal, and maybe it was lost somewhere along the way. Uh, gathering as the people of God, anticipating his rule and his reign should be one of the most profound things that we ever do. And I wish, I hope that we could see that, that when we gather in space and time here, that we are a representative gathering of the future kingdom of God, and we're functioning as an alternative statement to the powers of this world. And in doing so, we say that this world is not all that there is. These nations that we live in, that we are around, are not all that will be. The enemy will not have the final say, and our king is coming back to make all things new. Let's pray. Lord, would you um, remind us, teach us, and show us how special it is to be with one another, regardless of all the things that churches can do, or maybe the things that churches should do, um, would you help us to just have a moment where we um, metaphorically take off our shoes because we're on holy ground? Because we know that we are with your people and we are with a little subsection, a local chapter of your very real and coming kingdom. Would you help us? each week that we enter these doors to remember that and to be, I guess, grateful for this church community that you've given us. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.